This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we keep hearing they're coming, they're coming, the vaccines are coming, but as weeks go by, we know the numbers have not really been what we want them to be, especially as we watch vaccine rollout increasing in other countries south of us. They're having much more luck, even in Washington state, way more people getting vaccinated than we've had here in in BC. So it's been disappointing. And criticism of the Trudeau government's rollout has also been ramping up too. Polling shows Canadians are nervous about that, unhappy with the way the vaccine rollout has gone. Ipsos Public Affairs CEO Daryl Berker joins us now to talk about their latest numbers on this. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Simi. Uh, let's talk about the potential for a federal election. I tend to think that the longer these numbers are disappointing for the Trudeau government, the less likely that is. But if there were an election, how's it looking right now? Uh, an election today would probably give us the same kind of government that we have right now. Um, and uh, the, the Liberals don't have a big enough lead. I mean, the only reason to call an election for them is that they would form a majority, and there's no majority in these numbers. Really? So no improvement even for the Conservative Party? They've got a new leader. I've seen a lot of ads on TV. No, he, uh, Aaron O'Toole, uh, the new part leader of the Conservative Party, has really not punched through yet. And, and in all fairness, it's very, very difficult for the opposition parties at a time when they can't travel. Uh, their leaders can't get out there. They, they really can't get a lot of attention. Everything's focused on the government and their daily press conferences. It's, it's tough for them to punch through. And I think we're seeing the effects of that in this. What about the personal approval numbers for, say, the Prime Minister at this point? Well, they've come down, but uh, what we asked specifically was how people were feeling about how the Prime Minister was performing in managing the pandemic. Um, and uh, those numbers have come down, but still half of Canadians say that they're, they're reasonably happy with the Prime Minister's performance. And compared to how he was doing prior to the last election campaign, it's actually quite a big improvement. Really? <laughs> yeah. I, okay, I'm, I'm surprised that the number, like what happened the last couple of weeks with the vaccine, the frustration, that that has that really dented the numbers at all? Well, there's an interesting thing that I think we're seeing in the numbers right now, and that's that people have moved away from looking at these as just partisan type issues, and they're looking at the performance of the government. And what we're seeing here is probably as much hope is it actually is an evaluation of performance. So they're willing to give them a bit of the benefit of the doubt because they're hoping that maybe some of these things might happen, but they're growing increasingly skeptical. And one of the things that we're seeing in the vaccine numbers is that uh, only a minority of Canadians now believe that the government will be able to uh, to meet the, uh, the goals that it's put in place. Mm, so we've lowered our expectations, it sounds like. Lowered our expectations and, then, and along with that have pushed back our expectations about when we think we're going to be able to get back to doing the things that we enjoy doing. Hmm, interesting. And how, are, how is the Prime Minister doing versus, say, the Premier's? Uh, Prime Minister is scoring behind the Premier's in every single uh, jurisdiction that we looked at, usually by about 10 points. Uh, so Premier Horgan, for example, is performing quite a bit better than the Prime Minister in British Columbia. Now, obviously, the, uh, the, the Premier of a particular province has a home court advantage or a home field advantage. But uh, one would expect given that the federal government is taking such a leadership position on the most important aspect of this pandemic, which is vaccines, that they would be doing a bit better and they're not. So do you think then those vaccine rollout numbers are kind of dragging the federal numbers down? Yeah, and I think that uh, what we're going to see is that if they don't meet their targets and you know, those March deadlines are coming up, uh, regardless of what the reason is, uh, that there's going to be a lot of questions asked about the management of this issue. So how many people actually think, and I, I understand this is a very low number, that we're actually going to do well with this vaccine rollout or that it's going better than we, they thought it was going to? I think the number was about six. <laughs> Like 6%? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty so low. low. Uh, no, and, and more, more, many more people are, are saying that it's doing worse, which is why, you know, the headline here is that 71% of Canadians are saying that they're angry 
uh, with uh, the fact that we're not doing as well as the United States and the UK. So um, the public's still hopeful, still willing to give a bit of a, a bit of, bit of benefit of the doubt to the government, but they're really on the line for this one, and they're really um, going to be evaluated quite harshly, I think, if they aren't able to achieve their goals by the end of March. Oh, as always, so interesting. Daryl, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Simi. Daryl Brecker is the Ipsos Public Affairs CEO talking about their latest numbers out, taking a look at kind of the the political aspect of this whole vaccine rollout situation. And if there were an election to be called, which I don't think it's going to happen this spring at all, uh, they're saying that the Liberals and Conservatives, for all intents and purposes, tied right now. Liberals have a slight lead, something like three points on the Conservatives, but negligible statistically, right, when you look at um, the margin of error on those things. So they're pretty much tied. And according to Ipsos, they said this is directly attributable to people's concerns about how the vaccine rollout is going. If you want to weigh in with your concerns, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Let's talk about the numbers of COVID-19 right now, because I think there's some concern out there that we may be starting to see an increase in cases. Could that have been from Super Bowl weekend? Too many people gathering. Could it be from Family Day? The number yesterday was unusually high that we heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix. Now, there were a few reporting issues, but there's also a spike in cases once again in the Fraser Health region. So joining us now to talk about incubation periods, and is that what we are seeing, is Jason Kinderchuk, the Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology biology and infectious diseases at the University of Manitoba. Thank you being for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me on, Simi. So what do we know now about incubation periods, Jason? Like how long before an event like a Super Bowl Sunday could we expect to see a potential increase in cases? Yeah, you know, I think the data is actually pretty conclusive right now. So when we look at, you know, kind of the regular circulating strains for the virus, uh, what we know is that you know, on, on average, you know, by the time a person gets infected, within 14 days, they are likely going to have symptoms. And usually what we see is the majority of people fall into kind of a, you know, day four to day six, um, where, where they normally have symptoms. But no, I think it's 98% of people will, will have symptoms by day 11. Um, so that, that gives us an indication of, of where things fall. So that, and that when we kind of talk about this idea of, you know, incubation periods, we always talk about looking at the data in kind of two-week increments and thinking about the fact that, okay, well, whatever happens today, you know, two weeks from now will be reflected in, in our actual data. So, you know, we were always kind of, you know, a little bit behind the eight ball in, in terms of figuring out what, what the trends are. Um, but certainly it, it gives us more conclusive data, the variants. Uh, or the variants, and particularly B117, uh, you know, may change some of that a little bit, but the, I think the dynamics will, will mostly hold. So when I saw the numbers from BC yesterday and all of a sudden we're up again, you know, it's 600 and something, I immediately thought of Super Bowl Sunday. Is that a, is that a stretch, yeah. do you think? Uh, no, I, I don't think it is, right? I, I think that the, the trouble of trying to kind of pin it on just one thing is that we don't necessarily know if it, you know, if everybody's behavior has changed on that specific day, or was there something around that period where where we did see a general trend, uh, you know, change or trend? And, and to be quite frank, we're we're seeing a little bit of a change in that in Manitoba as well. Um, you know, probably some of that is related to that, but some of it also could be related to, you know, was there a change in the weather pattern? Was there, you know, other events? Did did people just simply kind of get tired at that point because it had been a long January and, and decide to start, you know, changing their patterns a little bit? Um, I think we'll see the next few days if the trend balances out and if this was just an anomaly or if this is going to continue going in, in the wrong direction. Right, because we had a lot of concern about last weekend. We had a long weekend, right? It was Family yeah. Day weekend here in BC. And I, given the message that we were hearing, the tone of voice from health officials, I feel like they're very worried about the next few days of numbers because of that. Well, I think where, you know, where we all sit right now is that you know, we, we've seen this kind of global trend where cases have seemingly been decreasing, in, you know, at least in the, in the major populations of the world. But we've had a couple of other events that have been going on. One is we're still seeing increases 
uh, in, in some low and middle income areas. Um, but we also know that the variants have been increasing. Certainly B117, even with cases decreasing, what we see is that the proportion of the B117 cases are increasing, which means that, yes, people are doing great. It looks like, you know, that these normal right. pharmaceutical interventions are working, but B117 is still kind of bleeding through. Um, and so all of those things are, are concerning for us because I think we know what will end up happening if cases start to spike out of control again. So you can be doing what you've always done, thinking this has worked, but it might be still a little too social given these variants. Well, that's been the, the issue with B117, right? It said, you know, the, the data is, is pretty conclusive now saying that, yes, the transmissibility has certainly increased. We don't know for certain if it, uh, if it causes more severe disease. The data seems to point that way. But yes, in, in regards to all the things we've been doing, now, you know, even when we're doing the right things right, if you have a little bit of a hiccup and you don't wear your mask properly or, you know, you spend a little bit too much time indoors or in a closed space, there's an increased chance that, that you can get that variant. And, and that's where we, you know, we get concerned now when we talk about, you know, say kids in school and saying, we don't know what B117 looks like in kids in regards to transmission. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, in regards to talking about masking and all these you know, kind of NPIs that we've been doing in infection prevention control measures, now's the time to really buckle down so we can get control of it. But what we're seeing in other provinces is now is the time they're starting to loosen restrictions. <laughs> I don't understand, yeah. Jason, from what oh, you're saying. I, I know, I know. And, and, and it's, you know, listen, if you, if you go on social media, you, you know, you'll see any number of uh, far, far smarter people than me that, uh, you know, that, that are kind of screaming at the top of their lungs saying, why are we doing this now? Um, I, I think that, you know, certainly there's this idea that, OK, well, cases are decreasing, so maybe we're OK. Um, and we're all kind of looking at this and saying, yeah, you know, if, if B117 catches on, we know what's going to happen. We, we watched it in real time with the UK and with Ireland and, uh, and certainly with Denmark as well. Um, we need to be very, very careful with this. And, and certainly if we're going to do this and we have to ensure that testing is kind of at, at its peak capabilities so that if there are cases, we're going to pick them up as quickly as possible because we, we just can't leave it to, to chance. Do you think that's happening right now then? Are we at that level of testing? Um, I think we're getting closer. I mean, to me, you know, again, I, you know, I'll, I'll be biased. I, I, again, looking at Manitoba, what they've been doing, you know, they, they've been pretty quick with being able to identify contacts with B117. And we're still only at one confirmed case, which I think is good. You know, we, what, what that's been able to show is that the tracing and, and testing has been able to say, do we have any additional cases? And, and are we, you know, are we seeing any additional spread in the community? And, and so far, it looks like we're not. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we can let down our guard. So I think we really have to be very, very kind of meticulous in, in how we start to reduce uh, restrictions and, and how we are guiding people with messaging in regards to what we know about the variants, because that's also going to change over time. So would you say the next few weeks then are critical in all the provinces, yes. given the variants? Yeah, and, I, and honestly, I think globally, the next few weeks are, are really going to be important. You know, we've seen certainly B117. Again, I, I bring up B117 a lot because we know that it is more transmissible. Um, but, you know, the, certainly what's coming out of the U.S. is going to be important. Are they going to see a spike in cases? And what happens uh, across Canada, you know, particularly in, in Ontario and Quebec, where numbers, you know, are still, you know, they're decreasing, but they're still on the high side. Um, I think we really want to be conscious of that and uh, and use that as as a guide. Okay, so if people think that what they're doing is okay, they should we should probably think twice about that then for the just for the next little while. Yeah, I, you know, now it's really the time that it, it is kind of going back to this idea of like, are you know, how are you wearing the mask? How are you taking it off? Uh, are you wearing it all the time? Are you ensuring that it's on tight? Um, have you considered double masking if you're, you're going to, you know, you're going to be in, uh, you know, an enclosed setting for an extended period of time? Now's the time to really think about those decisions. All right, Jason, thanks so much for talking to us this morning. Thank you for having me. Appreciate that. That's Jason Kinderchuk, who's the Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba, explaining incubation periods to us, this kind of danger zone that we are in right now. Like, we all follow the numbers. I follow the numbers carefully. Every day at 3 o'clock, I sit down, grab my computer, open it up, and start, you know, digging into the day's numbers. And yesterday was a jolt seeing that. And then you start to wonder what happened. Is it these gatherings that we've heard from health officials, you know, warning us about the last couple of weeks? And do we really need to shut this thing down for the next couple of weeks? And it sounds like, yes, we do. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's talk now about a fascinating study out of the Souter School of Business at UBC. It's really relevant right now in light of the kind of nuttiness that we saw over that whole GameStop stock situation a couple of weeks ago. So this study found that people who actively trade stocks are exposed to much higher risk And get this, they typically end up with lower returns than people who opt to buy and hold stocks. So our show producer, Victor Young, spoke with UBC professor Xing Zhen about why it is so risky to try to get in on these investment trends. Hi, Professor Zhen. Thanks for joining us to talk about your new study. I think a lot of people saw the market activity with GameStop stocks in the past couple of weeks, and they thought, This looks like easy money. How can I get involved? Why is it so much more difficult for the average person or retail investor to capitalize on this sort of market activity? A lot of us, you know, acquire information via media, various types of media, right? And but as investors, um, the more retail investors, they acquire information a bit later. For example, recently we saw that there was a huge surge on uh, GameStop a stock for a few days then immediately declined and um, the investors knew that information when the stock was at its peak then they start to invest right um, then but they didn't really time the market very well and the moment when they inject the capital into the market we saw that the game stop stock started to decline so a lot of investors they thought they were able to time the market uh, and you know make returns in that sense but uh, most of them fail to do so in recent years there's been a lot of developments in terms of how the average person can participate in the market can you talk a little bit about the impact of some of these new apps that allow people to make individual trades i think Robinhood and wealth simple definitely made trading a lot easier for average investors like us um, by you know lowering the transaction cost but at the same time they expose a bit more risk to the investors in a sense that you know nowadays investors can be constantly on their phone looking at the market and when the market is you know going up within a day they may just invest and when the market is going down a little bit uh, you know because of loss of version and all those psychological effects investors may experience, they may panic and sell right away. Um, Because of those activities that's happening so frequently, investors really lose their long-term vision, right? Uh, When one buys a stock, the the person should be, you know, buying a stock because of its good fundamentals and with the intention to hold a stock for a while to make profit. Oftentimes, because of, you know, the more the easier way of trading, many investors lose that vision. Something I found really interesting in your study, you actually found a new way to measure volatility. How do you do that and what did you find? Absolutely. So in my study, basically we develop a new measure to uh, evaluate investors' actual experience and their actual uh, volatility by accounting for the timing of their capital injection and the amount of their capital injection. Um, the volatility really you know, speaks to the risk that they're exposing themselves to. And if we are basing on the current more state-of-the-art conventional measure of volatility uh, compared to our newly, measure, uh, newly developed measure of volatility, um, it's actually quite understated. Investors are assuming a lot more volatility uh, nowadays than they realize. We're not here to give investment advice or any hot stock tips, but you did offer one piece of advice that I thought was very interesting. Would you share that with our audience and also explain your rationale behind it? suggestion I gave is that I would recommend investors to trade as little as possible. By saying that, I meant whenever they are making any investment decision, they willing to think through uh, their decision. Um, are they purchasing or selling a stock because of its fundamentals, right? Or are they just trying to ride the market wave? 
if they are trying to ride the market wave, are they actually doing that by profiting? Because oftentimes uh, investors uh, don't realize that they're a little bit behind the market, right? Because there are a lot of very big institutional traders who could move the market in one direction. But a lot of times, retail investors like us, who are a lot more vulnerable than institutional retail, uh, institutional traders, we, we tend not to see that right away. Um, and also, if we go back to what we just talked about regarding Simple and Robinhood, those trading platforms, which made trading a lot easier nowadays, you know, like... It's fostering and habits of just trading mindlessly, which is not a way of actually profiting in the stock market. Therefore, I recommend all investors to trade as little as possible by really thinking through and asking, is this a smart decision? Great advice. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. That is Xing UBC professor at the Sauter School of Business talking about their new study on people who actively trade stocks versus people who buy and hold. This is Mornings with Simi. Talk about real estate. Earlier this week, we took a dive into the numbers from right across the country, and it shows that the market is hot, hot, hot. I mean, we've heard about multiple offers, listings being snapped up, no subjects, you know, all that kind of stuff going on once again in the market. And we're not even the hot spot in Canada right now for what's going on. Part of that is driven by people deciding they need a bigger space. They need more space. If they're going to be working from home and spending more time at home, they don't want to live in a tiny condo. They'd like to spread out a little bit. People are also selling and moving out of the city because they think, you know what, why do I need to be here if I can work from home all the time? So that's kind of driving interest in living elsewhere. For instance, the Gulf Islands. So we thought, let's find out what's going on in real estate on the Gulf Islands. Joining us now is Deanna Stobart, a main island realtor at Gulfport Realty. Deanna, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. So how busy have you been lately? Well, it's been quite busy. Um, Definitely over the past six months, we've certainly seen an increase in um, city dwellers coming to look and and some of them obviously buying. Uh, They can work from from home now, so they want to be here. Um, As you said, away from the city, and I don't know if the pandemic has has a lot to do with that, but we have actually seen an increase with real estate over the past few years. Um, People are looking elsewhere, uh, first-time home buyers, and again, the baby boomers are retiring and coming this way as well. Okay, so So what is that doing to prices or pressure on availability out there? Well, it's definitely putting pressure on on properties that come up, um, you know, with multiple offers. Uh, not a situation we were actually used to in the Gulf Islands because, you know, we're primarily a recreational property. Um, but it's not giving purchasers a lot of choice at this time, although things do come up. And we've got some pretty nice listings out there right now. Uh, are, would you say that it's price, are prices inching up because of that, the multiple offers and, and the lack of listings? I would say I would say yes to that. Um, you know, I guess a couple of years ago, our benchmark price range was probably about four hundred thousand and under. Uh, now we're at least over half a million for for an inland property. Hmm. What are people looking for then, Deanna? What are they asking for? Well, I mean, most people are you know they they generally seek out an ocean view waterfront property or a larger parcel. Um, but, you know, it also depends on, you know, in the individual's budget. A first-time buyer is, you know, quite quite happy with an inland home. Um, you know, somebody who's selling a home in the city may be looking for something with a higher, you know, have a higher budget for a, a waterfront property or a large acreage. So it, 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 it varies. Are, are particular islands more popular than others right now? Like, does it depend on how easy the travel is to and from the mainland? That seems to be some, you know, some remarks from some purchasers. Uh, as you know, Saturna Island's a little more challenging to get mm-hmm. to. Um, and Galliano seems to be kind of, well, it's the first stop coming from Tawasin. Exactly. So that, yeah, so a lot, there's a lot of focus on Galliano and Maine's second runner-up. 
and then I would classify Pender as third. Salt Spring is a different island all on its own. It's a you know it's like a little city. It really has become that, hasn't it? Yes. Mm -hmm. So it's about the one stop versus two stop. How many ferry stops do you want to make? Yeah, exactly. And when you're just here for a weekend, um, that certainly, you know, adds some pressure to your time. And what do the locals think about all this, Deanna? I mean, a lot of people move to the Gulf Islands because they want things quieter, not as busy. And now it sounds like there's like an influx of people coming. Well, you know, the locals, um, you know, a lot of a lot of people earning a living here are service workers. So for them, this is a positive. This, you know, this brings more economy to the island. And, you know, I always like to see some new faces as well. All right. So do you anticipate this continuing on? I mean, if it's busy now in wintertime, what is spring and summer going to look like? Well, you know, I, that's a good question, and we're hoping that we'll see some, some more inventory come up so, you know, buyers have a little bit more selection. Um, but, you know, it's, we'll, we'll see. We didn't predict this would happen either. So, hmm. so Is it slim pickings right now in terms of what's available? Yeah, it, it is certainly much slimmer than it was six months ago. So this is a more recent development then? Um, as far as? Sorry. So in the last six months, you're saying that all of now there's like not as many listings. uh, So there's more activity, would you say, in the market in the last six months? Um, I would say yes. I would say yes. I say we don't have as much to offer um, at this time. So, yes, it's a little quieter, but it's also the time of year. And we just came out of a, you know, what, a four day snowfall. So but we'll we'll see. Spring will bring some new inventory and we'll get people back. I think the island looking. I think you're going to be busy, Deanna. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. That Bye-bye. is Deanna Stobart, who's a Maine Island realtor at Gulfport Realty, talking about how busy it has been real estate-wise on the Gulf Islands. Uh, it's not just people retiring over there or wanting to live a different lifestyle. It's people just thinking, you know what? I don't have to l- I live near where I work. I don't have to do the commute. If I can now work from home, I'm going to do it somewhere else. Uh, and that means they're buying up property on the Gulf Islands too. Uh, now, if you wanted to talk about real estate, tell me what's happening in your neighborhood. I've been so fascinated by the stories that you've been telling me, uh, multiple offers, things going crazy. Have you tried to buy? Do you know somebody? Are you thinking about putting your house up for sale? What's driving your thinking on that? Email me, simi at cknw.com or call our buzz line 604-331-2899. This is Mornings with Simi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. A lot of us right now just kind of dreaming and thinking about where we want to go, the places we would like to be, if only we would, you know, get permission to go somewhere on vacation. Well, that day is coming. You may not be able to do it now or in the next six months or so, but it is coming. And if you want to do more than just think about it, maybe your taste buds can take that vacation for you. Uh, There's a local brewery that is introducing a line of vacation-themed beer. And their first one in their series is being released today. Joining us now is Nigel Pike, the co-owner of Main Street Brewing. Nigel, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks, Emmy. Thanks for the invitation. Well, what does it mean to have a vacation-themed beer? Well, we're all sat around in November, December, planning what we were going to do for beers um, in the coming year. And we decided that uh, it'd be kind of nice to, since we can't go anywhere, we'd take people on a little mental trip with some, uh, hopefully we'll kind of bring up some memories of the times when we could travel. I think Facebook right now for me is reminding me that I was in Hawaii last year. Oh, (laughs) why do you have to say that? (laughs) I know, exactly. (laughs) So we're like, hey, we're going to take our own little trip. Okay, so how do you do that? Like, is it new recipes, flavors? Where do you start? Yeah, we looked at um, kind of the balance of how we kind of take the series through um, into the spring and summertime. And this one seemed uh, a really nice kind of starting point. And we decided to call it Departure Lounge because it's like that first <laughs> exciting part of the trip. So this one is uh, Tropical Grisette. 
um, which is kind of um, get that lemony pepper characters of uh, farmhouse croissant. But to add that tropical side to it, we added some uh, dried hibiscus. So it gives it a nice little pinky hue as well, as well as some kind of cranberry um, uh, flavoring too. So Right. So you did some kind of flavor experimenting with this. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. The so word hibiscus kind of, you know, has, a, has it, a theme and an attachment to a lot of people. Is that the one that's coming out today? It is. Yes. That one's today. Okay. And, and then, how, how yeah. long will it be available for? Uh, that's a very good question. If it's anything like the last one, it goes pretty quick. So it's already uh, hitting stores right now. So it should be hitting shelves um, this weekend. Um, but um, yeah, usually our seasonal releases, they last a couple of weeks in the stores. That's an excellent sales pitch, Nigel. That's People are going to go looking for it today on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, so we usually how, have a lineup. So, uh, so how many, this one is it's really fun, too. It's a, it's a fun label. It's just, it really fits with uh, hopefully putting some smiles on people's faces. How many in the series? Uh, we've got four in the series. So the next one to come out after that, um, which will be in about three weeks' uh, time, which is Ocean View, which is a nice, crisp, clean, uh, sessionable lager. Um, but it all, that one has a tang of uh, black lime, so dried limes that we uh, put in the boil to to bring out this uh, a very subtle, fragrant hmm. um, profile. Okay. And so how, what, what else are you working on then? Uh, the other ones are the, is there's going to be a tropical sour. So around the passion orange guava, um, that one is going to run all the way through the summer, which is um, definitely probably going to be one of our biggest releases this year. And then followed uh, closely after in kind of June and July by um, a delicious hazy IPA with all those tropical notes and all those tropical fruits coming through. So I Looking at your website and you clearly, you guys have a lot of fun with your collaborations and your different projects that you like to work on, but you're right. A lot of it looks like it's sold out. So where can people find this? Um, So if you're looking kind of in the downtown core, uh, Broadway Liquor Store, Toby's Liquor Store on Commercial Drive, Broad Liquor Store, Legacy, um, uh, who else? Uh, Brewery Creek has some high points. Um, and then, you know, if we're looking at the uh, kind of the valley, a lot of the LDBs out in the valley have uh, taken it. Shark Club Langley, um, Marine Gateway, South Vancouver. Okay. Uh, but we, we even have it as far out as um, Kelowna too. All right. Things in Kelowna. Yep. People will have to look for it fast, it sounds like. Nigel, thank you. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for the invite and uh, good morning. Yes. And, uh, hope everyone can take a nice little uh, trip with us. Later today, not right now. Thanks very much for that, (laughs) Nigel. (laughs) Nigel Pike is the co-owner of Main Street Brewing. They have a new collaboration, new new thing that they're trying. They're doing vacation-themed beers. The The first in that series is out today, and you can check it out. This is Mornings with Simi. As you know, there have been concerns here in BC about pushing that window for the second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. But new research here in Canada, as you've been hearing about in the news, says that particular vaccine is so effective that the first shot alone just about does the trick. So let's learn more about that research. Joining us now to talk more about this is Dr. Danuta Skoronsky, who's the Epidemiology Lead of Influenza and Emerging Respiratory Pathogens at the BC CDC and Clinical Professor in the UBC School of Population and Public Health. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. Good morning. Now, you're one of the researchers who looked into this. What exactly did you examine? Uh, Well, what we first did actually was to take a close look at the randomized controlled trial data that was uh, reported by Pfizer of their first dose efficacy. You you may remember that got a lot of airplay as uh, being an estimate of about 52% uh, back when they first published their findings in the New England Journal of Medicine. But when we looked at their publication, we recognized that they had analyzed the data actually incorrectly. Uh, And I say incorrectly because um, in uh, uh, analyzing the data, they made the uh, wrong assumption that vaccine becomes uh, protective uh, at the exact moment that the needle uh, hits the arm, uh, that it uh, protects instantaneously, whereas it's a fundamental 
of vaccinology that it generally takes about two weeks for a vaccine to activate the immune response for uh, it to become operative. And, and this is actually evident in the uh, figures that they presented in their uh, publication, uh, this uh, two-week lag for the vaccine to become effective. So uh, what we did was we used the uh, data that they had otherwise submitted to the FDA uh, to recalculate for them the efficacy beginning two weeks after vaccination, which is what we generally do when testing vaccine effectiveness. And I've been working on vaccine effectiveness analyses for more than 15 years. This is just a standard practice. So it's unclear to me why they didn't do that. But when we did that, we showed that the efficacy was not 52%, but rather a game-changing 92% following uh, a single dose. And that randomized controlled trial data um, for Pfizer was uh, also evident in the RCT uh, analysis uh, presented by Moderna. So two RCTs showing independently very swift and substantial protection with the first dose of the mRNA vaccine. Right. You said it was game changing. Why do you describe it that way? Well, because if you get swift and substantial protection with a first dose, it really begs the question, uh, when should you be giving the second dose? Uh, you know, the uh, once you've got uh, good protection established, it, it doesn't suddenly drop off. Uh, typically, with um, uh, uh, protection, you see waning uh, gradually over time. And what that means is that we have time to assess when that protection may wane uh, over months and then um, move in to give the second dose. It really reinforced that the the second dose provides uh, minimal added protection. The the efficacy after two doses was 95%, after one dose, 92%. So you're not getting much added value by doubling back to give a second dose. But what you are doing is leaving many more uh, of our vulnerable priority group recipients completely vulnerable uh, while you are not giving them uh, that first dose and that scarce vaccine supply. Does the second dose, though, like would we need it eventually? Does it help with the longevity of the efficacy of the vaccine? So but we can push the window farther out? Yeah, you got it. Uh, You know, I'm recommending second dose deferral. That's not second dose cancellation. We do need a second dose. The question is when, in the context of currently scarce vaccine supply, uh, elevated epidemic activity and many uh, priority recipients who are not being able to receive a a first dose. And we should be clear that whenever we are administering a second dose, we are depriving someone of uh, receiving a first dose. And, you know, it's another fundamental of vaccinology that longer intervals between the first and the second dose are not a concern to us. Uh, The only reason you would want to give second dose more swiftly is if you didn't have uh, substantial first dose protection. But we have shown that, in fact, that's not the case with these excellent mRNA vaccines. We are getting very good protection. So is this something, Dr. Scronsky, that you think could change here in BC then? Should this lead to a mindset change? Yes, it should. And, and, and in fact, this is um, uh, information or observations that are now increasingly being shown elsewhere. Uh, Israel has uh, begun to report its first dose uh, efficacy. They published in The Lancet yesterday showing uh, uh, 80% roughly protection with the first dose. Uh, Quebec reported yesterday where they have, in fact, deferred the second dose. Again, 80% first dose uh, effectiveness. And here in British Columbia, we will be releasing today also showing uh, 80% uh, vaccine effectiveness in long-term care facility residents, in uh, healthcare workers with a single dose. So do you expect that to change then? Would that be a policy recommendation that we think might be coming? Well, it's a policy recommendation that we made uh, back in mid-December, and I'm hoping with this accumulation of uh, more evidence, uh, not only from the randomized control trials, which are frankly the highest standard uh, uh, evidence that you can have, but additionally with evidence from the field that that will uh, influence and have an impact on the decision makers. Well, thank you so much for your time and for explaining it to us today.
Okay, thank you. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. We really appreciate that. That's Dr. Danuta Skoronsky, the Epidemiology Lead of Influenza and Emerging Respiratory Pathogens at the BC CDC, clinical professor in the UBC School of Population and Public Health. She is one of these, the two Canadian researchers that are being widely cited all over the world today for doing this research into the fact that the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine is incredibly effective. And that means that you can defer the second dose So the recommendation being, give everybody the first dose as soon as you possibly can, and don't worry about the follow-up of the second dose within 42 days. You can actually let that go longer, but get more people vaccinated with that first dose. This explains what Dr. Bonnie Henry has been talking about the last month or so. If you've been following the press conferences, she has said that she's not worried about that 42-day window or BC, you know, pushing that window for the second dose. That is because she has also clearly been following this research. It started in mid-December there, as uh, Dr. Skronsky just said. So we'll see if this is going to lead to a significant change. It would mean more people getting vaccinated up front and less worry about when that second dose arrives. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, here's a question. You may not have thought of this, but have you noticed any kind of a change in the butter that you've been buying at the grocery store? I noticed this a couple of months ago, probably when I was doing all the Christmas baking. So I was leaving, you know, lots of butter out on the counter to get to room temperature so I could then bake with it. But I noticed that it was harder than usual. Like it wasn't creaming as easily as it used to. And so then I came across this story uh, last night, actually, that I'm not alone in realizing this. There are people all across the country who've been talking about this. So what is going on here? Joining us now to talk about this is Sylvain Charlebaud, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Hi, Sylvain. Hey, good morning. (laughs) Now, you noticed this too. Uh. Well, I have, and apparently I'm not the only one. Uh, back in December, I actually did, did send out a tweet just asking people, uh, have you noticed a difference? And uh, since then, I've, I've had an avalanche of testimonies, not only from consumers, but from people in the dairy industry. Or And uh, some of the information that I received were quite troubling. And uh, so over the last Several weeks, uh, I've been talking to a lot of people to try to get to the bottom of this issue, uh, only to realize that perhaps <laughs> this this problem we face uh, has something to do with what goes on uh, with uh, with animal feed and what is, what is being fed to uh, to dairy cows. Okay, so I had a real aha moment when I saw your name in this story <laughs> last night too. Uh, so, did you were you able to find out somehow what is happening? It's not our imagination, right? The butter is harder than it used to be. Yeah. So the dairy uh, dairy processors of Canada came out with a uh, communique last night saying, "Well, listen, we've talked to all of our members. Nothing has changed, uh, and they're asking dairy farmers to deal with this palm oil issue." Yes, palm oil. Uh, palmatic acids uh, are given to cows, not always, but just to increase the uh, butterfat content coming out of cows. Uh, as you probably know, uh, last year uh, everyone was home baking more. We needed to, uh, we needed more butter. And so, with the quota system that we have in Canada, while well, farmers were 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 pressured to make more fat for for processors. And uh, the one way to do it is to actually give palm oil, uh, palmatic acids, to cows. The problem with that is that it does increase the saturated fat content of the bad fat, which means that once the product is manufactured, uh, it will melt uh, only at a higher temperature. And that's, pro- that's one reason why perhaps your butter hasn't been... Yeah off at room temperature but there are other reasons but this is likely the most plausible reason why this is happening it's taking me longer to melt the butter in the microwave too when i decide to go that route so did you notice that perhaps uh, your butter is more watery coming out of the microwave as well hmm i'm gonna notice any difference there no, I haven't, but that's, I, I was always, I haven't really looked closely at that particular aspect. I'm baking this weekend, Sylvain. I'm totally going to be following this. Uh, but what Watch, do the dairy yeah. farmers have to say about this? 
Well, this is this is uh, I mean this you're, this is supply management. So boards are, are very political, so they're very careful. Uh, they they're not acknowledging any problems at all. I, I know for a fact that they've known about this problem since at least October of of last year, because uh, I know that uh, by speaking to many farmers, many people in meeting rooms. Uh, this has been discussed, and so they are aware of the problem. They're just not acknowledging it publicly. The one board that actually has done some public work on this issue is your own board in BC. BC is the only the BC Dairy Marketing Board. If you go on their website in October, on October 10th, they did state uh, they made a statement about non-foaming. But they, in that report, if you go down, they'll also talk about free fatty acid. That's another way to talk about palm oil. Okay, so, well, uh, obviously, so it, we need you to there. translate it for us, though, Sylvan. Yeah, so, yeah. so what conclusion <laughs> it's, it's did they come to? Memo, so that's probably why people haven't noticed, but I didn't notice. And so dairy farmers are fully aware of this issue. They just don't know what the problem is. Uh, we've investigated. Uh, it may be something to do with forage uh, also, the mixture uh, of corn, for example, that could create the same problem. But it happens so fast. And so many people are noticing, uh, like everywhere in Canada, everyone is noticing the same thing. And mm. so the, the palmatic acid argument uh, carries a whole lot of weight right now. No kidding. Listen, Sylvain, thanks for talking to us about it and helping us. We're going to be talking to you about this again, I'm sure, in the future. All right. Take care. Thank Bye-bye. you. Sylvain Charlebois is the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. With the mysteries of our butter, is it more watery? I hadn't noticed that. I'll have to take a look. Uh, But has it been harder for you to melt your butter? Is it not as soft at room temperature? There is a reason for that. The dairy industry knows about it. So what's going to be done about it? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you know, the upcoming Beijing Olympics have put the spotlight really firmly on that relationship between Canada and China. The Commons Finance Committee in Ottawa has also been raising red flags about that relationship, but for a different, also very good reason. Joining us now to talk about their recent recommendation that Canada cut off ties with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank is Liberal Chair of the Commons Finance Committee, MP Wayne Easter. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. This seems quite unusual to be speaking out like this. Uh, What was the message that you wanted to get out? Well, I I do think one has to keep in mind uh, this is uh, one recommendation of 145 in the uh, Finance Committee's uh, recommendations for uh, Budget uh, 2021. Uh, but it is it is an important recommendation. I will admit there's mixed uh, opinion uh, at uh, committee on the rec- on the recommendation. Uh, but I think it shows uh, the concern that there is uh, now with uh, China's geopolitical, if I could put it that way, endeavors. Uh, since the uh, first implementation of the Asian uh, Infrastructure Investment Bank. Canada does have money in there. It was put in to uh, do good work in uh, in other countries of the world, bringing uh, both uh, technological and physical infrastructure into some of the less well-to-do countries. But there is a view that uh, uh, China, which is the major player, and the head offices are in Beijing, uh, is uh, is using that uh, to promote its governance style uh, for its own geopolitical purposes, uh, uh, for maybe some dependence on China mm-hmm. uh, in places where that infrastructure is going in. So there's very grave uh, concerns uh, about it, and uh, certainly some on the committee have said, well, would that money be better spent uh, in the Canada uh, Infrastructure Bank? Keep in mind, this is not money that's been spent in China. There's some, uh, but it's a- an infrastructure bank uh, for uh, for other countries, Australia, Germany, and others are uh, part of it as well. United States is right. not. But Mr. Easter, given everything else that's happening with Canada's relationship with China right now and all the questions about it, this recommendation is certainly getting a lot of attention. What kind of response have you gotten to this? Uh, certainly, there's uh, there's there's a lot of favor for uh, uh, the, uh, the the recommendation. Uh, we're getting a fair bit of feedback uh, that way. 
it's 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 a much more uh, you know for us as uh, members of the uh, uh, the finance committee uh, we make our recommendations uh, uh, the government uh, is expected to consider them and uh, and they do and I do think it puts pressure on the government it sends a message to China uh, the cabinet decision though is a lot, a lot more complex right. a decision than for those of us as committee when you consider the the two big the two michaels it's the second biggest economy in the world the trading relationship and all those other factors but there's certainly a strong message here uh, that members uh, within the house of Commons uh, have uh, concerns, uh, and uh, and uh, that's being sent directly. So, are you hopeful that this will be listened to, given the pressure on the federal government these days to think hard about that relationship with China? I, I have no question in my mind uh, that there will be a serious thought uh, given to the recommendations. We have uh, uh, we've we've heard from. Uh, 793 uh, submissions, I think, and probably about 150 witnesses in these hearings. Uh, this is one of the issues that uh, that came up, and it uh, it's an expression of opinion for uh, cabinet and the uh, and the government to to consider. And even the prime minister is certainly uh, aware because in his mandate letters to the uh, to the new ministers, he said. Uh, uh, safeguard Canada's world-leading research ecosystems, as well as intellectual property, and that's the other area that has come up that we're extremely, and I'm extremely concerned about, uh, is uh, uh, insert uh, uh, insert applying a grant with uh, uh, with universities with Huawei. Yeah, uh, our Five I partners have said that they don't want anything more to do with Huawei, and. I'm I'm really concerned about that. It's a national security issue. We can't allow Huawei to uh, to uh, which really is an arm of the Chinese government uh, to be further integrated into our knowledge infrastructure. I'm really quite upset uh, about uh, NSERC allow- allowing that, and they are an arm's length uh, agency, no question about it. But the fact of the matter that the country and other countries have been talking about that, this and their Five Eyes uh, partners, should uh, give somebody a wake-up call. Okay, so this sounds like there's a lot, a lot of reasons why the government needs a complete rethink of the relationship with China. Also, the issue of potentially boycotting the Beijing Olympics has come up. What are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, you know, the, the, the motion is, uh, is a part of uh, a motion that started off as a, a recognizing that there's genocide uh, happening uh, with the Uyghurs in, uh, in, in China. And I think uh, on that part of the resolution, I support it. Uh, but tying in the Olympics uh, uh, is uh, that kind of, I think, uh, changes the topic somewhat because this is... Uh, this is Olympians that we would be hurting uh, more than we would China, uh, and uh, so it, it. I think uh, it complicates matters. I would rather us be expressing a, a point of view on what we see as, uh, and a, no, a lot of people see as genocide happening uh, in China mm-hmm. at the moment. And I think this. This throws a, w- a wrinkle into the ointment, if I could put it. Yes. If I could put it that way, and I uh, and it's certainly where I dearly would love to support the motion on genocide. I do not like the aspect of tying the Olympics in with it. Mr. Easter, thank you for your time on that this morning. All right, not a problem. Take care. Bye Appreciate bye. that. That's Wayne Easter. He's a Liberal MP and the Liberal Chair of the Commons Finance Committee, calling for the Liberal government's rethink of the relationship with China on a number of different fronts.